This is realestateinvestingmastery.com. Well, hello again, everybody. Welcome to realestateinvestingmastery.com, where we bring you expert interviews, people who um, are doing deals, making money, kicking butt, taking names. And uh, we got a great guest on uh, the, the line today. His name is Russ Lebrask from Pennsylvania. And um, we're not going to be talking about the Philadelphia Phillies, but I will say that uh, I am so glad that they lost. And I'm so glad they the they lost to the Cardinals. But uh, Russ, are you a Phillies fan, by the way? I'm I'm not. My father-in-law is, and my uh, my wife actually is an Eagles fan. Ah. Um, but uh, which I believe the Eagles won on Sunday. I'm actually from Chicago originally, so I'm I'm more of a Bears and a uh, Cubs fan. Well, there's some winners right there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, Alex, how you doing, man? Are you there? Alex. I am here. Alex. <clears throat> so I'm here. Alex is actually not in his office. Um, I gave him a pass because you're actually talk a little bit about why you're not in the office. What what did you just do? Um just putting just out here putting deals together, man. Oh man. I, and I'm actually driving around right now trying to get my wife to a Starbucks. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, and now I'm stuck in a car dealer lot trying to get out. <laughs> so, you did you just um, get a deal under contract, or what's what's up? With I that? did well. Well, this is the way it went. Um, we went. Uh, well, I've got I've got a partner um, that brought me a deal, and uh, I went ahead and pulled um, a private private money on it. And I know our man uh, Russ here. He's he's the king of. Uh, uh, business lines of credit, but I've got some pretty good private money lined up. Yeah. Um, so what I did with this deal is I went ahead and got private money on it, um, and I bought the deal for 140000 This thing is spotless. I could not believe how spotless it is. I could not believe how little, there's like no work that needed to be done to it or whatever. Um, so, I, and I was like very skeptical because I didn't even look at the house, um, when my uh, partner had uh, brought the deal to me, I was, he was telling me the numbers. I was like, no, nah, it can't be. It can't be. But I trust him. He's he's made some really good money in his day. Back in the heyday, he made a million dollars in a year flipping houses. So, um, but but he brought me the deal. I went ahead. I got private money, put it up on the deal for 140. We went around, turned around, and listed it for 242, <laughs> with doing absolutely nothing to it. Wait a minute. And by the way, I'm sorry if you hear the sirens in the background. That, that would be my son. No, no. <laughs> I really do. I hear sirens. It's my background. I have oh, my... okay. <laughs> no, no. So, um... You hear the crying of my son in the background. <laughs> no, you got this property under contract for 140 Right. And what do you think it's worth fixed up? Nice. Retail buyer? Um, probably about two. And that's the other crazy thing. Probably about two, um, two twenty to two thirty. Okay, so you got it under contract. Did you act? Did you actually close already? 
Yes. Yep. Okay. We took private money, closed <clears throat> on the deal, hundred forty thousand. How long ago was that? Uh, last week. Last week, and then you just got it under contract today. Is that right? I was just signing papers today. We got the uh, offer in over the weekend. So we, what we did was we kind of uh, we said, yeah, offer looks good, um, and kind of wanted to see what else traffic we would have got. Um, and that's a tip for you if you do list houses. You let the weekend play out before you ever finalize anything. So right. you just make the seller, which is you, very hard to get a hold of. You know, let your realtor be like, well, you know, I think we're good on this. Uh, you just <laughs> trying to get in touch with the seller, but I think he's, uh, you no, know, he's uh, he's out of town. <laughs> he's busy. He's busy. So that way money. you can get the most traffic over the weekend that you possibly can. <clears throat> All right. So you listed this on the MLS. Um, yep. And the house is vacant, right? Yep. What did you list it on the MLS for? 242. 242. That was my partner's idea. Okay. And you got a contract for what? 220 paying $5,000 in closing costs. Plus, it's a VA buyer, which means there's no seasoning oh, whatsoever. Nice. And um, they're well qualified. So you got an offer within a week. And you just uh, yeah, you just signed the papers. Um, so you still have about what twenty, thirty more days before closing. It's going to close November fifteenth, is what the contract says. All right, sweet. Yeah. So you're paying yeah. you're paying a realtor some commissions. You're you're splitting the deal with your the realtor, splitting the deal with my partner, and then a little bit to my money man. Um, I pay him actually twelve percent, so he's going to get. You know, he'll basically makes one percent a month on his money, which is really, really good. So at one hundred forty, he's making fourteen hundred dollars a month. Nice. So, do you have any backup plans? Like, what if the closing doesn't go through? Um, um no. I uh, we're. I mean, if, if we're in a situation where the deal is pending right now, so you once you're pending, you know, and you accept the contract, you got to see what happens. But we would just put it right back out there again if it fell through. But I think I think we're pretty solid on it from from what from what I gather. So your your net out of this nut uh, will be <laughs> what um, I'm gonna guess forty to fifty thousand. No, my 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 half will probably be somewhere in the thirties. Thirties. Yeah, that'll be my half because and remember that, you got two twenty and two fifteen. So it goes down to two fifteen with the five thousand in closing costs, and then six percent of that is like thirteen grand or something, okay. and then and then you got to pay back the money lender and all that stuff. So good for you, man! And this wasn't even a deal you found; somebody brought it to you. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it goes right hand in hand with what we're going to be talking about today. Is because I have private money available to me, yep. and I use it yep. on good deals. So the deals find me. And you're willing to pay that kind of interest to a private investor because it's not the cost of capital, it's the availability of capital that makes Absolutely. you so valuable. And that's what Absolutely. makes... Absolutely. Go ahead. My yeah. lender awesome. He can close in three days. <laughs> and, and, and Russ is going to be sharing about you know his story and, and, uh, and also be touching on uh, how he gets business lines of credit. But I'm telling you guys, first of all, just listening to Alex's story... And we almost every week we have somebody on here who's made tens of thousands of dollars doing real estate, doing one or two deals. 
And, uh, you know, maybe you don't like calling it real estate investing because it's not a rental property and it's not long-term cash flow appreciation. And But um, that's fine. I mean, we, we're open to all types of real estate investing. But the special, the things that, that, that uh, Russ and Alex and I specialize in is the, the these fast cash strategies of getting a property under contract and then wholesaling it and flipping it, uh, making a quick, five, 10, 15, 20, 30 grand on these deals. And it can be done. That's the amazing thing about it. Um, Absolutely. Oh, it's exciting. It's exciting. And uh, uh, realestateinvestingmastery.com, Alex and I spill the beans and really just give you some great content in about five, six hours worth of video. Free bonus, a free fast cash survival kit. If you haven't been there to our website yet, go get it. All we need is your email address and you'll get access to these videos where we just pull back the curtain and share with you everything that we're doing in our business and how Alex gets these deals, uh, how I flip my deals. Um, so it's really, really awesome. But good. Congratulations, Alex. Um, you know, we were we started this call late and Russ said, uh, oh, he's probably, we were trying to get a hold of you and we couldn't get a hold of you. And Russ said, uh, oh, Alex is probably in some kind of natural disaster or something like that because... <laughs> On so many of our calls, it's been an earthquake, or you've been in a tornado in an airplane, or a hurricane's coming through on the East Coast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, today today was actually a really good day. It worked out well because um, I, I just kind of took the day easy. We went uh, went to a, uh, a little farm area where um, you know the kids can do hay rides and check out goats and sheep and all those kind of things, and... And it worked out well because it was in the, right in the spot where I needed to go get my deal signed. So that's the beauty oh. of you know of uh, what we do. Alex, you didn't have to ask for time off. It's Monday, right now when we're uh, recording I know. this. So you <laughs> you didn't have to ask for any time off or use vacation days to go take your family. To... And it's eighty degrees out. That's all the time <laughs> request I needed right there. Awesome, awesome. All right, Russ, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. Um, I'm I'm a little disappointed actually that Alex isn't in some sort of natural disaster at the moment because every call there's yeah. always something going on there. Um, <laughs> although you got a fire going on in your background, don't you, Joe? I do. I smell some smoke, and uh, soon I don't know what like from wood burning smoke, and then uh, all of a sudden I hear this fire height the fire engine screaming past our street, or, you know, a few blocks away, and was hoping he wasn't going to our house. Um, but, you know, I, we're, our house isn't burning down. I don't have any natural disasters here. and uh, So it's all good, man. It's all good. <laughs> that's, that's very good. The only, the only problem, the natural disaster, is it's raining money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that sounds like a really good deal, Alex. Did you, um, if you had to put it back on the MLS, what, what would be, like, the retail for it? Uh, when you're listening for 242, is that what the going market is, or were you guys coming in under the market? No, that's way above market. I was actually thinking my what my partner. I was like, dude, I, I think you're shooting for the stars on this one at 242. And I was like, man, I think I think we're gonna maybe be at 199 or something like that. We're gonna scare people away. He's like, trust me, trust me. <laughs> I said, okay, man. We'll just put it out there and see what happens and you know and it, and it didn't take more than a week of to get it so and he wow. knows the um he's familiar with that market probably more than you are is that right or is 
Alex? No, no, this is my market. So, I mean, it's like, this is my, like, local market here. So it's just really, really, um, it worked out really well. I mean, normally, you know, you think in a house like that, I mean, I was thinking, man, we got to tear this carpet out. we got to go ahead and put granite countertops in if we're going to go for that. And then we got to do all, you know, the bathrooms maybe could have needed to be updated because, you know, I didn't, you know, they didn't fit the scheme that I normally do when I update houses. And he said, well, let's just see what happens. <laughs> just put it out there and boom. I mean, it's perfect. It just looks like, it looks like, I mean, it was the most spotless house I've ever seen somebody move out of. It was, it was incredible. Now, how did I he mean, find the like, deal? Um, I think he has connections that like, he has a really good referral network set up with, and I don't, he doesn't tell me exactly all his secrets as far as how he, how he gets some of these deals. But I mean, I'm thinking it's through something that has to do with, um, I don't know, maybe something like a financial planner type of thing. I, I don't know the exact methodology of it. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to spill the beans either because, you know, yeah, because he, he thinks I'll, uh, <laughs> well, he, he knows, you know, I would, he, he knows that you'll copy it. That's why. <laughs> right exactly so but i mean that's what i i think it has to do something with that and maybe through a financial planner or somebody's you know getting ready to um move or i i don't know what it is i mean yeah. because this deal started six months ago with him i think he went out and offered the lady like 150 for it and she's like oh no way i can't take that i gotta have at least 220 um, and that, that's another funny thing, right? I mean, when somebody goes and offers you a low price, you're just like, no, it's never going to happen. But apparently she went out and found her a place, uh, up North Pennsylvania to move to, and she wanted to move right away. And she knew, you know, we had the ability to close right away. So she came back and we were like, wow, the market's kind of shifted on this thing. Now we're at 140. <laughs> Wow. And uh, and she took it, and we closed in lightning speed. Awesome! It's the certainty, you know. People want that certainty, right? But yeah. now yeah. the only hump we have to get over here is the appraisal. We got to cross our fingers that the appraisal comes to what it needs to be. And I don't think it'll be an issue, but you never know. Appraisers are appraisers. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Russ? Well, I was going to say that it's the, the speed of it. If you can, you know, show, hey, I've got cash and we're going to close like in three days, you know, people are more willing to accept that lower offer um, because they know you're going to be able to close and get it done. I think most people right now in our, our current economy, their biggest concern is, is, is what we need to have happen going to happen? And are, you know, is it the person you're dealing with going to be able to actually make the things happen that need to happen? So yeah. if you can show that to no, them, so yeah. That's no, exactly I'll, right. Right. Because you know what, that's what we're thinking right now. We're all, our, 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 our VA buyers going to be able to do what they say, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, one so. of the things in our last interview with Pete from um, um, Flip to Free, uh, not um, Freedom Real Center. Freedom Properties. Yeah, Real Freedom Properties. One of the things that he said that I loved was when he asks a seller, you know, what's the lowest you'd be willing to take? And they'll say 50 it says, well, if I bring you, if I can close with cash in seven days, what's the absolute lowest you would go? Well, I might take 45. Then he says this, 
All right. Well, look, you're saying then if I brought a suitcase full of cash, you wouldn't take $40,000 for the house? In other words, I, if I brought over a suitcase of $40,000 cash today, you wouldn't take it? And most of the times, well. <laughs> most of the times the sellers say, well, okay, maybe I would. Um, but there, when you can come at that with a position of strength, um, that really, really helps um, in negotiating these deals, for sure. And it helps when you have access to private cash or business lines of credit and um, all that good stuff. So, hey, Russ, um, talk a little bit about your background. Um, what were you doing pre-real estate investor days? Well, I actually I used to be a uh, corporate trainer um, going back to – I've actually had a real estate business or a real estate investor business now since about 2002. And I actually was a corporate trainer up till the end of 2001, sort of into 2002. Um, I used to fly around the country teaching computer tech support geeks how to be computer tech support geeks. Um, and uh, I literally would be um, given notice maybe like two, three days ahead of time that I was going to fly. I'm in central Pennsylvania. Actually, where I'm at, there's a lot of Amish people here, but there's actually a lot of people here. I think we have about 800,000 people in my county. It's a pretty big county. Uh, I joke with my friend Mike Ferris, who's down in Delaware, um, that my county is actually bigger than his state as far as people and stuff go. But I used to travel probably about like eight months out of the year. My company would say, hey, Russ, go jump on a plane. And they'd give me a couple days notice and they'd be like, you know, we need you on Monday to be out in California or we need you to be out in Arizona or wherever you need to be. And um, it was an all right job. I mean, I, it was decent money and it, I, I liked certain aspects of it. But, uh, you know, now having a family and kids, you know, I didn't at that time. But if I would have had that going on, it would have been really hard. I was probably working 80, 90 hours a week easy um, for that job. And uh uh, I remember um, I was I had such short notice all the time, usually a couple days, sometimes maybe a week notice. And back in 2001, on September, um, uh, September actually, I was scheduled to be on a plane on September 12th of 2001, a uh, day after September 11th. Now this was scheduled like a couple days ahead of time. And so they say, hey, Russ, we need you to fly out. And then everything happened with September 11th. You know, we all know what happened. You yeah. know during that period and um my company was like well listen as soon as they clear planes or whatever we still want you to go do this super important training um you know teaching computer geeks how to be computer geeks and so we want you to jump on a plane so about a week later you know the uh um all right russ i just i had to pause the the uh, the recording here um and get you back on the audio is a little choppy but um you were talking about um, it was 9/11. You're in the airport, and uh, you were stranded or something. Maybe I, maybe I missed it. But well, no, I wasn't stranded. I was I was my company had said to me, you know, it, it was a week later, and they were like, okay, we still want you to go do training. So go to the airport and get on a plane and and fly out to California. I was in Pennsylvania. They wanted okay. me to fly out to California, and I actually went down to BWI. Baltimore is not very far from me, so. Um, I remember walking through the airport, and uh, it, they didn't have TSA quite set up yet. But what they did have were, you know, pretty much soldiers everywhere in the airport with M16 guns, and that was pretty much security. 
So I'm walking through the airport. I'm going to get on my plane. And I just remember uh, saying to myself, what in the world am I doing here? And why am I why am I letting my company kind of control my life? I mean, uh, you know, I was kind of concerned about flying, obviously. I was like, well, let's be honest. I was a little scared to jump on the plane at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, as I really started asking myself, what am I doing here? Why am I letting a company pretty much control all my decisions? And now I, I need to kind of uh, backtrack a little bit further and go back to, when I was 16, I'm in my 40s now. When I was 16, I was very entrepreneurially inclined, you know. And I, I remember I was reading books. I was going to seminars even back then. Um, you know, I went to uh, actually uh, one of my favorite seminars at the time was, uh, or infomercials at the time was, um, uh, oh, what's his name, Tom Vu. Oh yeah, <laughs> the Asian guy. Right, you know, come on my boat, you know, come to my seminar, you can have all these women behind you as well, and you know, at 16 that was kind of appealing, but you know, so I went to his seminar. Am I related to him? I think there's a joke about that. I don't know that Tim Mai is related to him or not. So, but you know, I I was going to, one of the seminars I actually did go to, and one of the books I got that I really liked was Robert Allen's book called The Challenge. And so um, I had read that, and I actually went and saw Robert Allen in person. I still have to this day, um, you know, this was back in like 1986, I think. I was like 16 at the time. I still have to this day a signed copy of the challenge. And the challenge was basically um, he he flew into, I think, East St. Louis, so not far from you, Joe, and, and picked like five people to learn how to do real estate. And the whole book was more of a motivational book than a how-to book. It was probably one of the first books I read. And, you know, back then I was I was very entrepreneurially inclined. And, in fact, even going back a little further when I was younger, um, you know, some kids have lemonade stands and stuff. Well, I had a poop scooping business. I actually <laughs> – um, I, on my way to school, I would go to – I had about five or six houses of neighbors – and I would actually clean up the, the dog poop in their backyard. And I was making like $10, $20 a house times you know five or six houses. And this was back in the early 80s. I did this for probably four or five years. It was my wow. first business I ever had. Um, and uh, there's actually a guy today in my area that has a, a multi-million dollar business that does that. Um, he advertises, has bandit signs, all that kind of stuff. Makes a couple million dollars a year doing it. Scooping, do I know. scooping poop? Yeah. Yep. Yep. In fact, his name is called. He, I think his name is Mr. Scoop. I think it's MrScoop.com. And um, so, yeah, he makes a couple million dollars a year doing it. You know, uh, people, I guess, are too lazy to clean up their own backyards or whatever. And I did this back when I was a kid. I was a you know a young young kid, teenager, you know, making sixty, eighty bucks a week, which was good money then. You know, to buy. I don't think it was even Nintendo at the time. It was probably Atari or something like that. Um, you know, it was good money to buy my video games and all that. And I just, uh, you know, I I was always entrepreneurially inclined. As a teenager, I started going to seminars and stuff. But then I fast forward and got into, you know, graduating college and got in kind of the mundane of life and had my corporate training job. And, you know, going back to being in that airport on September, you know, a week later after September 11th, I was like, what am I doing? Why am I letting a corporation control my life? Why am I letting them make decisions? You know, I think I... I that was the catalyst for me to finally say, all right, I'm going to pursue 
a business and actually pursue the real estate business. And I started putting things right after I got back from that trip. I started really putting things in place to eventually leave the company and uh, eventually start my. What I do is rehab to retail, <clears throat> so buying houses, getting them fixed up, turning around and reselling them. Although I do sprinkle in some wholesaling as well. Um, so I I remember I I went to a couple seminars at that time. I started getting my ducks in a row. Probably about six or seven months later, one of the reasons I was traveling so much was my company was starting to outsource a lot of what they were doing. So, was, you know, uh, setting up call centers in India and outsourcing a lot of the stuff. And so I, I had at that point set myself up that I was going to go um, start a real estate business. And, um, you know, went to a couple seminars then, read some books and tapes and thought rehabbing's the way I'm going to go. And in between um, kind of leaving my company, I found my first rehab deal. Um, and then from there, just kind of worked things out um, and, and to I am today doing this full time. Now, I'll tell you with the company, what was interesting was since they were outsourcing everything, I knew the writing was on the wall. So not only did I have an epiphany like, okay, this is time to no longer work for someone else, but the writing was on the wall that I was going to actually lose my job probably in six or eight months. Um, so everything kind of correlated because I saw what they were doing. They were outsourcing everything to other you know parts of the world basically. And I, I was training people in my own local call center. I remember a guy came up to me and um, it was my last training class and I knew it was going to be my last training class. And the call center that I was at, they had – um, as a stopgap, because some of the outsourcing wasn't in place yet, they hired a bunch of people locally. And they were telling everybody, hey, this is a great company to work for, great job. And I knew these people weren't going to have a job three to six months from now. I mean, that's not a great way to start, you know, coming to a company and three to six months from oh, now yeah. you're not going to have a job. Right. And I, I, the guy I kind of knew, I actually had worked with him years ago at another company, and I pulled him to the side and I said, listen, dude. He's like, yeah, you know, I've, I've gone through three or four companies already in the last two years, and uh, they keep letting me go. And I'm like, that's about to happen here, dude, too, man. You may want to look for something else. And so all of those things kind of put together is like, you know what? While working for a corporation was okay, um, you know, there was no security in it. But really, for me, there was no control in it. I, I really wanted to take back control. So I set up a, my rehab business. I had... Uh, found a deal. Actually, um, I did everything that the books and tapes said. You know, I went out, I found my first deal. It was an REO. It was a bank property. And uh, I got the thing under contract for, I think, like $34,000. And we have in my area here, we have a lot of row homes. Um, so um, row homes are big up east here, but in other parts of the country, just think like townhouse but like really old townhouse on a block, you know, a bunch of houses all kind of squeezed together on the same block. That would be a row home. So we have a lot of row homes here. I found one for like $34,000. It was a bank property. And, um, you know, I was, uh, everybody was at the various seminars and books and tapes and everything I read was saying, go get some hard money. So I found a hard money lender and, um, the hard money lender was loaning, willing to loan me money to do the deal at 18% interest and six points. Um, so I found this guy, I found this deal and he's like, yeah, I'll do the deal for you, but it's 18% and six points. And I was like, okay, well 
that uh, sounds okay, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it's money, right? So he's gonna, they're going to loan me money. Um, this particular lender was doing 70% of the after-repair value, so the comp in the neighborhood, 70% of the after-repair value of the property, um, uh, plus repairs in there. So, or minus factoring in, then minusing your repairs out, but he would include the repairs as part of the deal. Um, but there was a problem with this particular hard money lender. He thought he, he thought that I could sell the property for like $75,000. In fact, he had an appraisal done, but you know, Alex, you were talking about appraisals earlier. He had an appraisal done from an appraiser that was like out of town, didn't know our area at all, and came in at like seventy-five thousand. When there were comps like right down the street for like ninety thousand, which I, which that's what I figured I could sell it for. So right off the bat, he wasn't going to give me seventy percent of ninety thousand. He was giving me seventy percent of um, seventy-five thousand. And then the other thing was, he thought it would only take about fifteen thousand to fix up, and it took. Uh, it actually took about 25000 to fix up. So that was like my first deal. Um, now, needless to say, um, some I learned a lot of things from that first deal. Um, you know, By that point, I had left my job. I mean, I had found a property, but I had left my job. They gave me some severance money and stuff. And um, so now I'm into my first deal. I had some money saved up because of the severance and everything, but um, you know, I've got my first deal going on here, but I'm coming up short and, um, I'm like, what am I going to do? I at least purchased the property. I got the work started. Now the hard money lender, every time he's coming out, um, to give me a draw against money to pay my contractors, he's charging me like 300 bucks just to come out and visit the property. So I'm like, you know, there's a couple things here. I'm really not liking about this thing, but at the end, hopefully if I make money, you know, I made some money and okay, everything will be great. But I'm running into some issues. So I remember I went one of the seminars I went to. I went to a, um, a the speaker uh, at the seminar. He was a tax attorney guy, and he actually was talking about. Listen, if you're going to get into this thing called real estate, you need to treat it like a business. You need to set yourself up as a business, um, and you really should do it right off the bat. And I, I just remember hearing that, thinking you know, this is a business. I really do need to treat it that way. And one of the things I did before I ever did my first deal was I got a, a business entity set up of an LLC. I'd set up my LLC and um, got my EIN or my tax ID number. Um, and I had set myself up as a business before I ever did my first deal. Now, that was kind of a blessing in disguise because one of the things that happened with this, with this rehab deal that I was doing was I need to come up with some money. And someone had said to me, well, why don't you use a credit card? And I remember at that point starting to hear about, you know, businesses and that you can get business credit and starting to understand the difference between business and personal credit. I thought, okay, I'm going to apply and see if I can get a business credit card. So I did. I applied for a business credit card. And I actually, I, I got a business credit card for 20 grand. And I was shocked, actually. I was like, wow, all right, so this will help me at least pay my contractors and my subs to get this deal done. So that's what I did. I got, I ended up paying my contractors and my subs with the credit card. I actually used a cash advance check uh, to do it. You know, they send you these cash advance checks with, well, right now you can get them with, you know, 0% interest for a year, 
by using the cash advance check. And you might pay a fee, like 3% to use it, but it's well worth it. Like today, I'll, I'll uh, pay my roofer with a cash advance check. If I need a roof that's like for $4,000, he's going to get a cash advance check from one of my business credit cards. So anyway, I used this business credit card to get that deal done. And I ended up um, selling the property for the 90000 that I thought I could sell it for. I ended up, my fix up ended up being about 25, but when all was said and done on that first deal, I think I made about $24,000 on it. Um, and that was my very first deal, but I had learned a couple lessons from that. Good. I start, yeah, I mean, I, I, a lot of good lessons. I started to figure out the business credit side of things. And one of the other things that was happening in that same period of time was I had a mentor of mine. Um, actually, he's Joe and mine's mentor to this day. And he was talking about using go to small local banks and um, get rehab loans from the small local banks, just like a hard money loan, but go to a small local bank. Now, at that time, there were a number of small local banks that were pretty much doing rehab loans very similar to hard money, but for much cheaper interest, maybe 8% interest on the deal. Um, but they would structure it almost like small local banks. And in my area, I, I went into what I thought was a small local bank. And here it turned out um, that it wasn't a small local bank. It was actually a regional bank. It, it covered a couple different states. But I go in and I talk to the lady, the banker, um, sitting behind the desk. I'm like, listen, I've got this rehab business. We buy houses. We get them fixed up. And I'm going through my whole spiel with her. I said, I'm, I'm looking for a rehab-type loan. And she's like, we don't do that. I'm like, oh, okay, well. You know, what do you do? She's like, well, you know what? It sounds like is she, she's like, well, what do you really need this money for? I said, well, I need the money to kind of cover my day-to-day -day expenses for my business, like money to use on a day-to-day -day basis to get things done. And she's like, well, we have something that you might be interested in. It's called a working line or a revolving line of credit, and it's totally unsecured. Um, and it's, it's actually based off of prime and interest only. So at that time, it was prime plus one, uh, which to this day, it's still prime plus one, but it was maybe 6% interest, straight interest only, only when I used it. And she didn't require any documentation. And I was, I was floored by all this. I was like, wow. And it was for $50,000. I thought, well, I can use this. So those whole things combined back then started me on the process of how I fund all my deals to this day which is using unsecured business credit. Um, and uh, that was how I kind of stumbled upon it. I've fine-tuned fine it a lot since then. Um, and I use it to this day right now to fund all my deals. It's how I, how I do everything is with business credit in, in the two formats, in the working lines of credit that are unsecured um, and the uh, business credit cards. Um, Russ, be before we go into the deep, more details about the business line of credit, um, you had left your job at this time and uh, you started wholesaling or rehabbing some properties and started making some money. When did you feel like, you know what, I could do this on my own. Um, I, don't, I don't need the, uh, I don't want to call it a crutch. Uh, I don't need to lean on a, on, a, on a steady paycheck to make money in real estate. When was that point in your life? Well, you know, I, I think... The, it was it was the turning point of of in the airport saying what am I doing with my life? I just knew that I needed to set up and make sure that I had some backup money 
but I was going to go full force regardless. But yet, had you done a deal by that, at that time yet? Um, I had. It was about six six to eight months later when my company let me go, and I was in the middle of doing that first deal that I was talking about. I and see. actually, I was into my second deal. I had another property. I hadn't finished the rehab on the first one. I had a second deal already in the works as well that I was working on at that time. Um, so I I was comfortable enough, you know, looking back on it, um, I, I did have some money saved up. I think one of the things that um, uh, when you go into this, um, you know, I hear, and Joe, I'm sure you hear this too from people, they'll say, um, I'm just going to quit my job and I'll make $10,000 next month without having anything in place. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on yourself. So I, it wasn't that I just quit my job. In fact, the reality was my job quit me. They let me go. But I, the signs were there that they were going to let me go eventually anyway. And I had put money aside and I had severance money aside and I felt comfortable enough. Um, and I had that first deal done which gave me some money, it was like 24000 And then I had a second deal that I was in the midst of working on. So all of those kind of lined up together. Um, you know, so I, I knew I was going to do it. Okay. And if, I was, if, I was, if it wasn't going to work out, then a year later I'd probably be back in corporate America again. Um, but, you know, I had a business kind of thought process that was going on. It wasn't just that I was going to sit in my underwear all day and, and, and make some offers. Well, you know, you can kind of do that. Hey, 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 there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. <laughs> there you go. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the, the, the re- there, and and you you know what that definitely sells courses, but the reality is that you. <laughs> you oh, come on now, come on. Um, but you know the reality is that there's still some work involved, right? And <clears throat> and there's still you still have to you still have to treat this. Yeah, you still have to treat this like an actual business. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that really started to click in for me when I first got started was. I, I and I don't know exactly where I heard this or where when it really started to click in, but um, I well I think it was the tax guy that was saying treat this like a business. So that was the first thing, and I started to look at. All right, well I had when I was a kid I had a poop scooping business, and you know even in college I had some other businesses. I used to buy stuff at public storage auctions, and I'd turn around and 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 then sell that stuff, and you know I. I look back at you know, there are different times in my life that I was I've I, I kind of had some business background, but really I was either providing a service, you know, like the poop scooping service of picking up people's dog poop, um, which there was money in that, and then and is money in that, um, or selling products of some sort. You know, I did some flea market stuff. I did the public storage auction stuff. We buy stuff at public storage auction, turn around and sell it. So. I started to really look at real estate the same way. I really started to look when I was first getting started, Joe, I really started to look at real estate as I'm just offering a product. My product happens to be real estate. And that was one of the things when I was talking to the banker, I was like, listen, our, our product is the houses. I'm just buying them, getting them fixed up. I'm turning right around and selling them. You know, I'm, I'm just, it's it's the product that I'm selling. It's no different. You know, I thought about like I really like hot dogs. I, I probably like hot dogs way too much. You know, I thought about maybe I'll go into business and start a hot dog business. 
But, you know, I, I'd have to sell a lot of hot dogs to get even close to the kind of money I can make with real estate. Um, you know, I, I, you know, maybe I make 20 grand every t 20 grand plus every time I sell a house, you know, and maybe every time I'd sell a hot dog, I make 20 cents. So I was just looking at kind of the philosophy of that real estate is just simply my product. I don't care if it's houses or cars or whatever, but houses work out really good from the result of the, the margin of profit that you can make on them. So it was that philosophy of businesses of, uh, I'm in the real estate business and my product just happens to be real estate. Those things clicked in for me. Because um, it, it kind of relates to what Alex and I talk about all the time is you're in the business, you're in the marketing business and you're in the business of marketing and selling your product and services. Right. Um, <clears throat> and when you understand that and treat it like a business, that's when you uh, start seeing those breakthroughs. I think that's good. Real good. So, Russ, talk a little bit about talk about your experience. I mean, what do you normally do on with deals? You normally fix and flip and sell to the retail market? Do you do much wholesaling at all where you get a property under contract and and uh, sell it uh, the same day? My my core business has always been rehab to retail, meaning we buy it, get it fixed up, and and put it back on the retail market for sale. Um, and I've over the last couple of years, I've added a lot more of wholesaling. Um, especially this year, I've, I've really started to add a lot more wholesaling to the mix. Um, Why and, is that? Do you think? Well, part of it is the the markets have shifted. Um, I, I, my philosophy right now with, with my product of real estate is I pretty much am, I want the quick nickel instead of the slower quarter or dime or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really want to be in and out as fast as I can. And I'm seeing in my market and in other markets too, that prices are still shifting downward and they're shifting downward pretty fast. Um, you know, the average, we're, we're pretty good at, with our, with our rehabs right now of typically we're in and out of a rehab be, from the time we buy it to the time it's fixed up to the time that it's back to closing and sold again. We're somewhere between three and six months of total time, um, which is, which is pretty quick for a turnaround time. Uh -huh. But if I can wholesale it and be in and out in a week or in and out in a day or two, um, I've been leaning toward that more just because of the shifting of the markets. Um, in, in my own in my own market, we've seen probably this year um, we've seen an increase of um, the amount of properties available for sale is up about twenty percent compared to the same time last year, and the amount of buyers of actual houses that are closing um, is down by about twenty percent. And our values are off by about 10%. Yeah. Um, so combining all those factors, I'm trying to figure out ways to get in, get in and out faster. That's not to say that houses aren't selling on the retail market. They are. And if they're priced right, if they're priced slightly, that's why I asked Alex earlier, well, at, at what price point were you for that deal you were doing? Were you on a, a little bit cheaper? For me, when I price our properties right now, we're going to be the cheapest house in the neighborhood as far as price is concerned. 
and we're going to be the nicest house in the neighborhood. That's the way to get them, you know, sold quickly right now. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's just been a matter of speed. And if I can make one of the things I've done with the wholesaling is I've said to myself, I, I want on a re, on a on a retail rehab the minimum that I want to net is twenty thousand dollars. So I just said to myself the same deal. If I can if I can make it a minimum of of that on a wholesale, then I'll wholesale it as well. Um, so I've also gotten to a point over the years. I have what's called a rule of ten. If I can't get to a house within ten minutes, I I actually I don't want to buy the house uh, from a reha- from a rehab to retail standpoint because I do project manage our rehabs, meaning that I will call the roofer guy i'll call the plumbers i don't actually do any of the work on them but we'll project manage them um to get them done fast um so that's why i like to be within kind of a 10 minute range now from a wholesaling standpoint my thought process is if i can grab anything within my county um if it's outside of that 10 minute range then i'll just wholesale it i'll wholesale it to someone else as long as I can still net a min- my minimum net that I wanted to on the on the retail side, um, and the way the market shifted with numbers, I've been able to actually do that. I've been able to do pretty good on some wholesales lately, so I'm starting to like it. <laughs> All right, Russ, talk a little bit about um, some of your favorite ways to find deals. You're wholesaling some properties, you're rehabbing them. Uh, how do you find these sellers? Are they on the MLS, and how do you get such good deals on them? You know, primarily, um, my my main source is the MLS. Uh, I am a licensed realtor, so I have access to the MLS. Um, I buy a lot of bank or REO properties off the MLS. Um, and uh, lately, I've been buying uh, HUD properties as well. Um, my other secondary source of buying properties is just networking. Uh, networking with my, my local people from my local RIA group. Um, in fact, I get quite a good number of deals from, uh, people in my local RIA group that are wholesaling me stuff. Um, cause I kind of come across as, well, not kind of, I do come across as the, I pay cash in two days guy. I'll, I'll pay cash and I'll close within two days. And I'm able to do that. My, now the people in my local area don't know how I'm able to do that, but I'm able to do that by using my lines of credit. Cause I can just simply write a check, write, you know, right on the spot for a deal when I'm interested in them. Yeah. Um, so the, um, MLS has been really good for me. Um, I prefer that over, um, marketing and, you know, having, we buy house signs and all that kind of stuff. Um, I just don't like to deal with the phone calls and stuff. It's a lot easier for me to just kind of scour the MLS and, and do some networking with, with other investors and getting my deals that way. Um, so that's that's the main way that I like to do it. Um, so how many houses on average a month or a year do you wholesale or rehab? Well, you know, I I kind of have a, a simple life philosophy. Um, you know, we're both part of uh, life and air, and um, I really like to keep things simple. So I actually do somewhere between six to ten deals a year. But my minimum net on each one of those deals is twenty thousand. I won't even touch a property if I can't do at least twenty thousand on it. Nice. Um, and I I do much more than that also, but it's it's at least twenty thousand on a deal. But it's it's like the six to ten range. I'm really comfortable with with uh, I, I'm a more under the philosophy of uh, kind of quality deals 
versus quantity and trying to have to hustle to get a whole bunch of deals every single month and do a whole bunch of marketing. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. It's just it's a uh, I prefer to create things and have things be as simple as possible. Um, you know, it, it, the easier and simpler it is for me, the more I like it. Um, and the MLS that makes it really simple. HUD right now uh, is crazy. There's crazy good deals on HUD right now, and HUD is very simple to make offers on. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I just recently got a HUD deal where it was, um, you know, f- for folks listening, if you go to to make an offer on HUD, you go to HUDHomestore.com. They kind of re this past year, they, they switched how they did everything, and so now they have a kind of a central location that you go to uh, to get your to make your bids on HUD properties. It's HUDHomestore.com. Great site. And it is a great site, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so I, I recently had uh, put in – I can make my own bids because I am a realtor, um, and uh, – I and again I have access to the MLS as well, um, but I can make my own bids. So every night I I make my HUD bids and I put in an offer recently. HUD had a property listed for originally they had it listed for one hundred and twenty one thousand, um, and it had been on they had it on the market for about seventy four days and they dropped the price of their listing to ninety four thousand. And I had put in an offer of twenty thousand. Okay, on it. okay, wait. A <laughs> it was originally listed for one twenty. One twenty one. Yeah. They knocked it down to ninety four. Right. And you bid twenty. I bid twenty on <laughs> okay, it. Okay, yeah. go on. I sling some mud, and so they they accepted my slinging a mud offer. So the next morning, I get the email that says your offer's been accepted. And um, now I typically. Uh, especially with the bank properties, I typically go look at properties before I make offers on them. But with HUDs, what I've been doing is um, there, there's some interesting, actually, some some takeaways from this. Actually, there, there um, with with this particular HUD, um, I just make offers on every HUD in my county, and yeah. uh, so I I made this offer. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier I have a rule of 10. If I can't get to a house within 10 minutes, this house actually was on the edge of my county, um, and uh, it was actually about 30 minutes away from me. And um, so I didn't go look at the property at all. I went off the pictures that were were off of the MLS listing and off a of HUD home store. And so I was just slinging mud. I thought, you know, I can't, I can't lose at 20 probably not going to accept it but you know what we'll throw it in a 20 and see what happens well they accepted it so you have with HUD you have 48 hours to get them the paperwork that they need so I immediately when I got it the next morning I get the email your offer has been accepted so I drive out there I go look at it and I was pleasantly surprised it was probably going to take me about 15,000 to fix up it needed a kitchen uh, needed an updated kitchen it needed the bathroom updated and then everything else was cosmetics carpet and paint and stuff um uh, nice nice neighborhood kind of country you know think mayberry like from the Andy Griffith show it was kind of in the country sort of at the edge of my county and but it all looked good so i thought all right well i i wasn't a big deal for me. I I sent in all the paperwork. So you have you have forty eight hours, right? Right. Well, so you have forty eight hours to get them the paperwork so when the when the proper when <clears throat> it gets accepted. So um, that and typically the way HUD works is 
when you put your bids in, you have till midnight in whatever your time zone is to get your bids in. And then the next morning they go through the bids and they either accept them or they do what they call uh, cancel them, which is basically they reject the offer. Um, or they send you a counter in the email saying, well, we're not happy with what you gave us, but um, if you come in at, say, 78000 then we'll take your offer. The, it's what's called the net to HUD that they want to net on the offer. So um, sometimes you'll get counters. Well, I just got an acceptance on it. I was like, I was like, I need to go look at this. It all looked good. I went and um, everything looked good. I'm like, oh, no problem whatsoever. Um, 15000 for me was no big deal as far as the fix-up went to get it fixed up. And the actual, the 121 that HUD was originally asking, well, that's actually what comps were in the area um, uh, for the property, um, somewhere between 110 and 130. Now, my strategy typically is um, I want to be slightly under whatever the, the market, the going market is. So I probably would have priced it at um, 110, 115. Um, that was kind of where I was basing my numbers off of as well. Um, so at 20 and with 15 a fix up, it was a great deal to begin with. And I, I got the thing under agreement. They accepted all my paperwork. Um, and one of the things is that in my state, in Pennsylvania, where I'm at, um, the buyer has choice of title, of, of what title company or what title attorney to use. It's buyer's choice. The seller cannot dictate, and I, I don't know if this varies from state to state, but the seller cannot dictate who does title work. So I always, when I get a property under contract, whether it's bank property, a HUD property, or even if it were a private seller, I immediately send the paperwork over to my title attorney, his name's Jack, and say, start the process, Jack. Let's close as fast as we can. Because for me, I'll just write from my line at 4.5% interest only on the line. The quicker I can close, the quicker I can turn around and resell the property right. and get the property fixed up and stuff. So. Um, I actually, you have a 45-day turnaround with HUD for closing time. We actually closed on this in two weeks. Um, so I, I had Jack do all the paperwork. He's like, yeah, we, we should be good to go in, in about two weeks and get it closed. Now, in the meantime, I actually got a phone call from an investor buddy friend of mine um, who was calling me about a totally different issue. He goes to my RIA and he was calling me asking me about something else. And I said, hey, um, I've got this property um, that I'm picking up, but it's it's at the edge of the county, but it's where he works. It's it's kind of the area where he works. I said, "Listen, would you be interested in this at fifty thousand? Now I didn't tell him what I was paying for it, but I was like, "Would you be interested at fifty? And he's like, "Yeah, I'd be all over that." He's like, "Let me get my Amish partner. We got a lot of Amish people in our area. He's like, "Let me get my Amish partner. We'll go take a look at it." So in the meantime, I'm getting ready to close on it pretty soon. And he goes out with his partner and calls me back the next day and say, yeah, we'll do it for 50, but we need about a week. Um, you know, we, we've got to go into the barn and dig through the hay and get some money or whatever they had to do, right? So they, they got it together. So I actually took title on the property for a week. So I held it for a week. And then I turned around and a week later, we closed at my title company. Um, and my title guy actually didn't charge them the uh, reissue fee um, to reissue it. He was he was yeah. like, listen, I won't even charge them the, the fee to reissue the title. Um, we'll just close. But I did actually take title for a week and then flipped it to them for 50 
when all was said and done, I think my net on it was just shy of $29,000 because I had to pay transfer tax and, you know, a couple other fees here or there. Um, and, uh, uh, they ended up actually, I just talked to him last week. Um, they did fix it up, uh, put it back on the market. They have it under agreement right now, set to close, I think next week or the following week for one thirty. Um, and they ultimately, I believe he said they put about 20,000. They did a little bit nicer kitchen and did a couple, a couple things probably a little bit nicer than I would have done. Yeah. Um, and, uh, with some seller help and stuff. And so they've got it under agreement right now to sell to a retail buyer. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a great deal. Um, you know, and it was all cash and I didn't care if I held it for a week or not. It wasn't a big deal for me to hold it. What were your Um, financing charges for that? Well, here's the crazy thing. I was paying interest only on my line. Um, I wrote I wrote for my line uh, at four and a half percent interest. I believe my finance charges for the week on that were fifty eight dollars. Nice. Yeah, <laughs> which is a lot less than you would have paid a hard money lender or a um, transactional funder even to right. do the deal. If I did like transactional funding, yeah, it, very very cheap, very easy, and with the lines, it gives me a lot of flexibility. I mean, I, I if if I wanted to hold it, I could hold it. If I wanted to, um, uh, you know, I didn't have to close that day. You know, sometimes when you get real creative and you got to do a double closing and you got to close that day, or the deal's not going to get done um, unless you've got the funds to do it. I didn't have to worry about any of that. I just, you know, wrote my check and was able to close, and everybody was happy with it. So then. Um I mean, that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> I, love, I love the examples like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's easy to, to look at that and think, oh, man, I can do that in my sleep. If Russ could do it, you know, or you could think of things like uh, um, Russ must be doing that all the time, every day, all day. But, you know, he's not doing deals like that all the time. Um, <clears throat> but it's consistently being on the MLS, looking at properties, consistently making offers when things like that happen. And uh, it's because he's taking action and and, and not just sitting on the sidelines studying how to make a lot of money in real estate. He's actually doing something to make money in real estate. Uh, Russ, talk a little bit about um, what you're looking for in HUD deals. Uh, I mean, not HUD deals. Um, When you're looking for properties on the MLS to make offers on, what are the things you're looking for? Well, you know, a lot of a lot of times you'll get asked, well, what's your formula, right? So, um, you know, um, especially when I get people that are looking to wholesale to me, they'll be like, well, what's your formula? You know, is it? Uh, and the typical formula is seventy percent of the after repair value of a property uh, minus repairs, and then if you're a wholesaler, you got to subtract out what your wholesale fee would be as well. So if you have like a you know, a property that would retail for a hundred thousand dollars fixed up. You know, the it w- you'd take seventy percent of that, which would put you at seventy thousand, and then maybe the fix up's going to be another fifteen or twenty, so that puts you at fifty thousand. And then, you know, so the the purchase on it might be like forty thousand dollars, might be where I'd need to purchase it at. Well, I don't I don't really use a formula like that. Um, if I had to give a formula, I'd probably say it were 50 to 60% of the after repair value uh-huh. minus minus repairs um, 
from a rehabbing standpoint. But what I actually do is I, I, I had discovered a while back um, there is in every market there you want to find what your comps are right for for the market that you're dealing with you know that uh, I like neighborhoods that are retail neighborhoods that are kind of where your first time home buyers want to live at um, and so um, what I do is in my area in the county that I live in I'm going to give some statistics here because it, it kind of goes to how I actually break down looking for properties and what I'm willing to pay for properties and stuff. In my county, there's about 700,000 plus people. And within my county, the average household income is $58,000 for the county. And the average household income for the city that I like to work in is $38,000. Now, you can anybody can find out statistics for their area. There's a site I like. It's called city-data.com or city-data.com. It basically gives you a breakdown of statistics for your area. Um, and by going to city-data, one of the things that I discovered was that in my market, since the average household income is fifty-eight thousand dollars a year for in the suburbs and thirty-eight thousand in the city, those that's actually the important number. And then the secondary number is what is your population base overall. But in in my market, fifty-eight thousand is the average household income. So for someone that's buying a house right now, for them to get a mortgage, and mortgage rates as of today are like four percent. But we'll just base this off of anywhere between four to six percent for interest. The government says you shouldn't be spending more than thirty to thirty-five percent of your in, of of your income on a mortgage um, for for getting a mortgage. So if you start to calculate the math, someone that's making fifty-eight thousand dollars a year, or a household that's making fifty-eight thousand dollars a year, they can afford to have a mortgage, or they can afford a house. That is within a range of a hundred and fifty thousand and two hundred and twenty thousand. So one of my bread and butter markets, and exactly where the comps are now for stuff that's actually selling in my in my area, is between a hundred and fifty on the low end and two twenty on the high end for a house. Stuff over two twenty in my market sits. Our new home construction market started to sit. Um, for the last couple of years because it went over that 220 mark. In the city, my average bread and butter house that I sell is between 80 and 110,000 or 120,000 um, within that range, 80 to like 120. Um, and that's based off of because the average household income is $38,000 a year. So and it actually compares with if I pull comps for my area and stuff that's actually selling, and if I cross-reference this with people I know in other parts of the country, the comps for houses that hold true right now are in direct for stuff that's selling are in direct correlation with what the average household income is for that particular area. So, you know, you, you get into say Virginia or, or where Alex is at. Maybe the average household income is like seventy thousand dollars. So maybe your top end would be two fifty or three hundred thousand, somewhere in that range. So I actually fit my what I'm looking for for properties. I'm looking for properties that I can sell most likely to first time home buyers. 
And that fit within those income ranges, the fit within that 38,000 and fit within that 58,000. Um, and so when I break that down, I have two kind of bread and butter sweet spots. It's 80 to 120, and then it's 150 to 220. And so I don't even mess around with stuff over 220, and I don't mess around with stuff under 80,000 because the buyers aren't there uh, for my market. Um, so that's how I look at properties. And then what I. That's key. You're finding out where the buyers are first, and then you're targeting those neighborhoods. And uh, so then talk about what are you looking for in the MLS because you probably have hundreds and hundreds of properties to go through. Uh, what else besides the price range are you looking at? Okay, so um, I, from from a standpoint of stuff that I'm actually want to put offers on, there's a couple things I'm looking at. I, I'll I actually will throw in keywords. I have keyword searches. Um, you know, one of them being HUD, but also bank owned, um, uh, addendum, um, uh, TLC, um, trying to think of a couple other ones. Oh, one I really like, and this is overlooked by a lot of investors is one of the keywords I do a search on in my MLS is rent, the word rent. Um, so, um, if I had to categorize the type of properties I'm buying, off the MLS, they start with bank-owned properties. So I, I do quite a few that are bank-owned properties that are listed by the banks in the MLS. Um, but secondary, there's two secondary uh, types of properties I really like. Um, and one of those are um, properties where landlords are trying to sell their houses. They've listed them on the MLS. Um, and so one of the key words I like is rent. And a lot of investors overlook this, actually, because here's what happens. Um, let's say you have a rental property and you've become a tired landlord. You're sick of, the, you're sick of this property. You want to get rid of it. So you put it on the MLS. And I'm looking for neighborhoods that are primarily homeowner neighborhoods, but that will have um, some maybe rental houses within that neighborhood, right? So... Um, I, I punch in a keyword of rent and I'll get, I'll get landlord properties that are listed. And so a typical situation would be like this. It's property that's listed for maybe 50, 60,000, whatever it might be, but it says that it has a tenant in the property. Um, so it may be listed as a good deal as far as the price is concerned, but it's a homeowner isn't going to look at that property at all. When they sit right. down with their realtor and start searching for properties, that's not even going to come up on their radar at all. The other thing is an investor a lot of times will ignore that property also because if they are a buy and hold type investor where they're buying properties and they're putting tenants in, they want to put their own tenant in. They don't want to deal with the issue of having a tenant that um, they're going to have to deal with. So I actually target these properties. So I'll go in, I'll make an offer. I just did one recently where um, uh, it was a it was a row home. It was listed for um, it, the well the retail of it in the neighborhood that it was at was uh, one ten. It's actually one oh nine nine is what I ended up selling it for once I got it. Um, and I had the the owners of the property listed the property for like fifty something thousand. I think it was like $58,000. Um, and it said that it had a tenant in there. So I called up 
as I talked to the agent on the other side, turned out they had just got rid of the tenant, but they were disgruntled landlords. Well, fifty-eight thousand, and based off of I went through the property, it didn't. It it really only needed about. Well, it ended up actually. We ended up putting twelve grand into it. We did put a kitchen in it, and then um, carpeted and repainted it and stuff. And um, then we were done. It didn't. It didn't really take that much. It took about twelve grand to get it. So I made an offer of their. They were asking like fifty-eight thousand. I said, "Listen, I'll, I'll I'll write a check. We'll close um, as fast as you want since the tenant's already out. Um, you know and." I actually said to them, well, we can close in three days. They called me on it, said this was like on a Thursday. They accepted my offer, and then we closed on the Monday. And um, so I said, all right, well, um, let's close on it. I ended up closing on it, and I, I picked up that deal. I think when all was said and done, we made 23000 something like that on it. Um, and it was a disgruntled – they were disgruntled landlords. They were tired of being landlords. Um, so rent is one of the key things that I search for. It's overlooked a lot, uh, by other investors. Um, the other thing I like actually that I search for off the MLS, I really like a lot, um, are estates that are listed on the MLS. Um, you know, probate is a great, great source in general, but here's what happens when a probate or an estate is listed on the MLS. Uh, typically, um, the houses are dated. Um, you know, they have, you know, the 1970s kitchen in them or 1950s kitchen in them. Um, and they've got the shag carpeting and all that kind of stuff. But I found in most cases, the systems and stuff are taken care of. They've taken care of that. So some of my best deals have been estate properties that are listed on the MLS. Because what happens with them in our current market is buyers have lots of choices. So let's say the the person trying to sell the estate property, they maybe they'll have the house listed close to retail. But now it's been 120 days. So now they've lowered their, their price a little bit. Um, but it's not selling. And the reason it's not selling is that the buyers with money right now have choices. And so they're going to look at this house and they're seeing the dated kitchen. They're seeing the dated carpet. And they're comparing it to the 20 or 30 other houses that they've looked at where they don't have to do anything to the house. They don't have to fix it up. They don't have to do anything. It's turnkey. They can get right in. So some of my best deals over the years have been estate properties that are listed on the MLS um, that have been sitting for, on average, at least at least 90, but more like 120 days plus on the market. Um, and I love those. I love those properties. So estate's another keyword. E S T A T E estate. Yeah, estate. E, um, I think that's how you spell it. <laughs> Sounds yeah. right. E S T A T E. I just logged into the MLS here and um, I did a search for the word rent, but I got all the ads that had the word current in them, like sold in its as is current condition. Um, so I did just search for um, tenant. Like sometimes marketing remarks, they'll say you know, or agent remarks, it'll say. Um, a tenant is in the property or something like that. Um, do, how do you filter out the words, ads that, or the MLS listings that have the word current in them? Well, it depends on your MLS system. I think if you put it in quotation marks, you'll get just the just that particular word. 
Um, now, what I do with estates is I actually do a state of, and I have an asterisk symbol um, before the the word of, um, so that it will it will grab anything like a, um, you know a state of Mary Kay. Actually, I think the asterisk symbol is probably on the back end of it. But um, I think if you wanted to do just a specific word, depending on your MLS system, I believe you just put it in quotation marks. Okay. Yeah. Um, the the uh, and rent rent is a great one. The state's a great one. Um, the I'm trying to think of some other ones there, but. Um, Uh, bank owned, I think I said. REO, um, HUD is another one uh, uh-huh. for finding HUD properties. Um, addendum. The reason you put addendum in there is especially like if it's a short sale or if it's a bank property. Sometimes in the in the private remarks, um, they'll have need such and such addendum, and so uh, addendum is going to be a keyword as well. Yeah. <clears throat> and you're looking for homes that are over 90 days on the market. And uh, you just go in. You don't really have a formula, but you look to see what other investors are buying homes for, what are similar homes currently actively listed for. And um, you just make an offer with a number that works for you. And if they right. accept it, great. If not, that's fine. Right. But, um, yeah, cool. So you're, how many offers would you say you make a week, Russ? You know, I'm probably only at about maybe 10 on average. Um, and my accepting ratio is probably, um, of, of accepted offers is probably one to two out of 10. Um, because I'm looking for, uh, as you were saying, I'm looking for, uh, motivation factors. Um, how long has it been on the market already? So 90 plus days on average, um, you know why are they selling? Uh, you know, bank, it's obvious if it's a bank property why they're why they're selling. But um, you know what is their motivation behind why they're selling? Um, and my numbers are pretty close to where they would need to be based off of what needs to be fixed up on the property also. So um, it it's it's probably about ten on average of what I what I'd offer every week. Do you still make these offers on on potential short sale deals? You know, I'm not doing very many short sales. Um, I I uh, I have found if I see if I see something that's listed and it says short sale, the the first phone call I'm making is, has the bank already approved a, a, an amount or not? If they haven't approved, uh, if the bank's not cool with the short sale yet, um, then I'm not making an offer on it. As I just don't have the patience or time to deal with short sales. Well, what if the short sale is approved? If it's um, approved, I'll make an offer on it. Absolutely. But they've only approved it for you know the list price, right? Well, there's still I'll still make an offer on it at that point because. It, but the other thing to look at then too is if it's been approved and what's it been approved at. If it's pretty close to where I want it to be, then I'm definitely making an offer on it. But even if it's not, I'll at least then make an offer on it because at least the bank. What happens a lot of times with short sales that are listed on the MLS is the agent that's listing the property, they, they're not anywhere close to getting the thing approved by the bank. And then you're just going to be ripping your hair out forever. I mean, you, you got to be pretty much to that stage where the bank is already in the process. They're already ready, 
they're, they've already approved a number, um, and at least there's some playing room then. So I, I just I, I really don't like short sales for the most part. But if it's listed and it's been approved, I'll go after it. Right. Okay. Um, that's cool. And you're looking for houses that, I mean, sometimes the more work it needs, the better, right? Because the more discounts you're going to get. Right. I'm definitely looking for stuff that needs work. And or, back to the estate thing, I, I really like those if you can't tell, but back to the estate thing, is I am, I'm looking for stuff that's dated. You know, the the more because dated stuff's easy. I mean, you put in a new kitchen, you put in new carpeting, you put in, you know, fresh paint. Um, but the more work it needs, the better. Uh, I'm I'm fine with that. I I like that from the you know, and that's what we're doing. We're doing rehab to retail, so we're getting it fixed up and then back on the market. Nice. Yeah. So why back to this estate thing too? Why would somebody put in there that it's part of an estate? Well, my Typically, um, when the house is listed, there is a category of, of owner, right? So they're, 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 they'll have in the MLS system, in my MLS system, and it's, it's similar in most parts of the country. It may be in the private remarks section. It may not be in the public remarks section. But somewhere in that listing will list the owner of the property. Well, the owner of the property, in the case of an estate, is the the either the executor, but usually they have to, they legally have to label it as the estate of, you know, Mary Jane Smith or whatever it might be. So they have to put in there an, uh, in the owner category, they got to put a state of. Okay. Interesting. Well, here in the, in the Missouri in St. Louis, I don't think we, we don't get that in, in the MLS listing who the owner is. But um, I just did a quick search for estate, and I found one deal. The first one I looked at, it uh, they call it an estate property. Okay. Um, the next one I pulled up, it said, um, in the marketing remarks, it said the real estate agent is, the seller is a real estate agent. And because estate is in real estate agent. It, it popped up that way. Right. Yeah. But um, I really like this because, you know, <clears throat> this is something that uh, – um, you can set up, and if you don't have MLS access, you can get a realtor to set it up for you where every day any new listings that have those kinds of keywords in them gets emailed to you. And uh, then you can take those properties, look at them, and you know see if it's a property you want to bid on or not. And if it is, then uh, you can submit a bid, either with the realtor that's sending you these listings or, or whatnot. But uh, Russ, talk a little bit about how you make your offers. What, what do you do... How do you write them up to make them so attractive to the sellers? Okay. Yeah. You know, my offers are as clean as clean can be. They are um, all cash, no contingencies, or, or and no inspection contingencies. Um, meaning that uh, I don't, uh, I'm not going to come back with a whole list of things that I want fixed on the property or anything like that. So it's all cash, no contingencies, and one of the things that I do is our earnest money or our escrow money, the, the deposit money with the offer, I make the full offer amount. So if I'm offering, say, $50,000 for a property, it's 50000 all cash, and my escrow amount is $50,000 with nice. no contingencies. Um, now, what I'll do is if they accept the offer, 
then I'll end up writing a check for my line and then we'll close whatever the date is that everybody's determined for closing. Now, when I make offers off the MLS, they're not getting the check till the offer's been accepted. So a lot of times I get a question, well, if you're writing a check for like $50,000, aren't you writing a lot of checks and you know, aren't you having to like cut them up and all that kind of stuff? What I do is I actually will photocopy a blank check um, and then I fill in the amount of, on that blank check of the photocopy that is. So okay. I'll take a photocopy check, I'll fill in all the information, the $50,000, um, and because I'm an agent, um, I'll actually, we make out the check to um, my broker, and so if the offer then gets accepted, then then we'll transfer that check over to their broker. But in the meantime, I just photocopy that check, write everything out, um, and submit that with my offer. And then I'll submit, um, typically if it's like a bank property, they're going to want a proof of funds. Um, so I just take a screenshot of my bank account um, and I'll, I'll preload some money from my line. I'll transfer money from my line of credit into my business checking account, take a screenshot of that, and then that's what I use for my <laughs> proof of funds. I scratch out like all the pertinent information except for the dollar amount. Um, and, and then that's what I'll, I'll include with the offer. Nice. So, uh, very, very clean offers that way. Um, and they are taken very serious because the escrow check is, is for the full amount of the offer. <laughs> simple as that. Yeah. <laughs> very simple. It doesn't get much more difficult. <laughs> <clears throat> so how much, if you don't mind sharing, you're, you're big on business lines of credit. And I love that because... Uh, it allows you to make those offers, those solid offers, um, but you're you're very careful with your business lines of credit. I mean, you're not you pay this down, you pay this stuff down immediately, don't you? Yes. Yeah. I only use it. The the, the here's the thing with with unsecured business lines of credit. They're unsecured, meaning they're not tied to any assets. They're not like a HELOC, like a home equity line of credit where it'd be tied to the house. Well, if the house goes down in value, then your line goes down and you can't use your line. They're, they're, they're completely unsecured. They're tied to your business and they show up on your business credit, but they don't show up on your personal credit. And they come in the two forms I was talking about before. They come in the form of either working or revolving lines of credit. Um, or they come in the form of business credit cards. Now, in the working or revolving lines, they're interest only. Right now, they're like prime plus one on average. But you only pay the interest when you use the line. And and they're, every single one of my lines is tied to a business checking account. And, and everything's online these days. You just transfer money. So I can transfer money from my line into my business checking account. Well, I only transfer that money when I'm ready to go to use that money. And then when I now now I'm the clock is ticking on the interest. Well, as soon as I resell that property, I pay back the money that I borrowed on the line um, and zero it all down. So I'm not I I don't want to accrue long term interest at all. In fact, my model is get in and out as fast as I can. So um, it's it's very much like a credit card, except it's much cheaper and I can write checks from it. Now with the credit cards. They're just like a credit card, except they're in your business name instead of your personal name. And the business credit cards will send me cash advance checks. And the cash advance checks, a lot of times they'll send promotional rates. Like right now I'm getting um, 0% for a year or 0.99% uh, for a year. 
um, with typically they'll charge a 3% fee. So with those, what I'll do is like, if I've got a roof I need to put on the property, I'll pay my roofer the four grand, but I'll use the cash advance check to pay him. And so I'll still pay that 3% fee, whatever that might be. So it might be like 430 bucks or something like that, or 400 and, or, um, I'm sorry, 4,000 and like $300 or whatever it might be. There'll be a fee on top of that for that. Um, but immediately, once I've sold the property, I zero everything out, pay everything off. But the cool thing is, it's right there to use it again, because it it the lines don't go away. Like it's a revolving or a working line. So and it's designed. The the banks term it as working or revolving lines. Well, that that word working that's actually a key word. Um, it, the money is actually designed for what a bank refers to as working capital. And working capital is your day-to-day operational expenses for your business, which can include marketing, advertising, uh, paying your employees. My employees happen to be my contractors I'm paying. And the big one, inventory. So I'm using the lines to make my purchase of my properties. And I'm using the business credit cards to kind of fund the fix-up part phase of it. Um, you know, paying my, my subs, getting materials that the subs need to, to get the deal done. Um, but I zero, I'm very careful. I zero everything out. As soon as that deal is, we've closed on it, everything gets zeroed out and I start the process all over again. Um, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Once you get the lines, they're there pretty much. What they do is typically with the lines, they're on a, a, a an annual year to year basis, and they renew them every year. Um, and uh, a couple things with the lines: when you go to a bank and you get an unsecured uh, working line of credit, um, they're as I've mentioned a few times now, they're interest only, and they may have some of them have an annual fee anywhere of like a hundred to two hundred dollars at the most. So you might pay an annual fee. Like some of my lines, I don't pay an annual fee at all. As long as you have a business checking account, they'll waive the annual fee. Um, and sometimes if you have a business checking account with them, they'll even deduct like a, a half percentage point of, for your interest that you'd pay. So maybe it's prime plus one and a half, but if you set up a business checking account, it ends up being prime plus one for your interest rate. Um, so um, they're, they'll continue. And when they, when they renew them every year, They'll continue. Once you get them, they'll continue to renew them every year. So um, as long as they're seeing usage on those lines, meaning that you use them, you pay it back, you use it again, you pay it back. As long as they're seeing usage, they'll automatically renew the lines year after year after year. Um, So, um, and typically they'll come in the form of, you know, my my lines average between fifty and a hundred thousand per line. So. Um, the, I've, I've seen postings on, on websites and I think even on, um, uh, wholesaling, uh, houses full time, uh, where, where you'll see someone say, yeah, you can get a, get a line through me and, you know, no front end fees, but there's a, be a back end fee. And really what those guys are, they're mortgage brokers. And so they're, they're going to charge like a back end fee of like eight to 10% or eight to 10 points for getting you that line. Well, you don't have to do that. The lines are very easily available. They're they're everywhere. Um, you just got to know how to look for them. So I'll even share a tip. 
uh, one of the websites I like for looking for uh, banks that offer the unsecured uh, revolving lines or working lines um, is uh, usbanklocations.com. It's usbanklocations.com. I've, I've been through that site. You've walked me through that, and it's very fascinating, the kind of information you can get um, in there. <clears throat> Listen, Russ, we got to end this call here. I have some two questions for you. Uh, the first one being, what's some advice that you would give to beginning investors? You know, some guys out there are still working nine to five. They're trapped in their cubic hill, and they're wondering how they're ever going to get out. Um, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who wants to invest in real estate? They don't know really where to start. Um, well, I think the first thing is is determining what you really want your life to be. Um, you know, do you want to be in kind of a cubicle working forever, or um, what do you want your life to be? You know, why well, for me, I want to be able to spend time with my family. I, you know, um, we have a, a decent lifestyle. You know, we're not worried about paying the bills or anything like that. Um, so coming up with what you want first, and then the discovering, you know, what you want, but really why you want it. You know, it's not a matter of just saying, I want a ton of money. I want to quit my job and have a ton of money. You really have to ask the question of, um, well, I want to quit my job, but why do I want to quit my job? And then on top of it, okay, I want a ton of money. Why do I want a ton of money? I, I was recently on a coaching call with someone and the guy's like, well, you know, I just want to make a lot of money. And I said, well, why do you want to make a lot of money? What What is it that you really want? And as we were talking, he's like, well, I'd like to travel. I like traveling a lot. I'm like, okay. He's like, I don't really care about fancy cars or anything like that, but I really like to travel. I'm like, okay, well, there's a starting point. You have to determine why you want to do what you want to do. And once you've determined that, you know, you, what you really want is you want to travel. I'm like, who do you want to travel with? Well, I, I want to travel with my, my wife and take my kids on trips and stuff like that. Okay. Well, now, now we're coming up to the reasons of why you're getting into real estate. So once you understand why you're actually doing it, it's a lot easier to then now come up with the action plan of, okay, I want, I want to have money to have a better lifestyle. I'm going to use the real estate business to do it. Now, how am I going to do that? What product or service am I going to offer? You know, um, and part of that comes to what what do you already have available to you? You know, do you have some time to start doing marketing and taking phone calls? Maybe wholesaling lease options is a great route to go. Maybe rehabbing is more something that you want to do. But now you come up with an action plan or a business plan and focus, really focus on um, just one thing. I think a lot of people get lost in trying to find, you know, the next greatest and best strategy out there and they never actually end up doing anything because they're not focused on, okay, this is what I'm, I'm going to focus on wholesaling or I'm going to focus on wholesaling lease options or I'm going to focus on rehabbing and then just sticking with that one single thing and, and focusing on that and coming up with a plan of action and, and taking, taking action steps. So that'd be the first thing. And then I think, what was the other question? Well, that was that was it. I think you answered okay. it. What, what advice would you give to beginners? Okay. <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to ask you though was, um, if you were dropped into a little town um, in the middle of nowhere, and uh, it doesn't have to be a little town. It could be any city that you don't know anybody. You're not familiar with anything. Uh, you, you don't know what, what you don't know anybody. 
you don't know any title companies. Um, you don't know what kind of real estate <clears throat> is available to buy or sell there or whatever. And you had to make five, ten grand um, in real estate to pay the bills. You know, what would you do? What would what would be some of the first things you would do to start making money? The very first thing I do is I'd find a local RIA group, you know, our real estate investor group. Um, so um, there's a couple ways that I would do that. I'd jump on like Google and I type in um, real estate investor group and then the town I'm in. Um, the other place I'd go is I'd go to meetup.com. And um, I love meetup.com. I mean, even if you want to be a salsa dancer, you can find like, you know, how to be a salsa dancer groups set up there or whatever. I'd go to meetup.com and I'd, I would um, see if there is a local real real estate investor group that's connected through meetup.com. So I type in the word real estate and the town I'm in under meetup and see if there's a, a local RIA. So the first thing is I want to go to the local RIA. The second thing is I want to determine the um, actual demographics for the area. As I mentioned earlier, I want to find out what the average household income is uh, for that area. So I'd go to like city-data.com and I'd, I'd figure out what the average household income is for my area and I'd figure out what my population base is. How many people do I actually have in that area? The other thing I try and do is as fast as I can is I try and figure out how to get MLS access. I really think um, I'm going to steal an analogy from a friend of mine. Um, I really think in this market, not having MLS access puts you at a huge disadvantage. So I'd want to try and get MLS access as fast as I can. It's kind of like if you're a contractor and you don't have a hammer. I mean, you really need the right tool. And um, you know, if I try to hammer a nail with my thumb, it's not going to happen very well, you know, or even if I went and grabbed a rock, it's not going to happen very well. So I, I think it's crucial that you get MLS access. So I, one of the ways is I'd go to my local RIA and see if there's some investor friendly realtors there and see if I can get MLS access, talk to them. Um, and the other way is, um, uh, you know, if they're not willing to give you MLS access, um, see if you can become their assistant. You know, ask, I'd ask to see if I could become their assistant. So I want to get MLS access. And once I have MLS access, now I want to start determining where my markets are at. Um, one of the first things I would do is um, look up cash sales in the MLS and figure out, um, uh, you know, how many cash sales are happening and where the cash sales are happening. And typically, the cash sales are going to give you an indication of the areas where other investors are investing, so um, where you start to see cash sales. Then I also want to cross-reference that and see if there's flips going on. So uh, if there's a history tab, um, I want to see if it was purchased at a certain price for cash and then resold a couple months down the ro road at a higher price. So I want to cross-reference those things. Um, so... Those, that would be my my attack and try and find a, a, an investor friendly realtor as fast as I can um, and start making offers uh, through the MLS simple I like that you're not <clears throat> you're not spending a ton of money on postcards and and uh, doing all these kinds of fancy marketing techniques which I love by the way um, yeah there's nothing wrong with that no. <laughs> it's 
that's how I do most of my deals. But uh, you're just out there making offers. And you're going to be making as many offers as you can every day until you get a deal under contract. Right. Very good, Russ. Um, for those of you who are wondering, you know, Russ has, has a wealth of knowledge on business credit, getting business lines of credit. And, and uh, I, do, you, do you care sharing, Russ, how much in business lines of credit you have right now? Would you rather I not? This, I don't mind sharing. I think okay. it's up to uh, this year, it's up to 1.3 million available to me. 1.3 million in unsecured lines of credit. Right. Now, now, you know, I know Russ. He's been a friend of mine for a while. And I, I didn't even really introduce him that well, but I apologize. <laughs> Russ is a friend of mine, and I've known him for th- two or three years now through Life and Air. If you, uh, listen to any previous episodes of this podcast we did an interview with steve cook and sean mccloskey uh, they are our coaches in this program called life and air <clears throat> oh, anyway russ has been in life and air and um he's just you know your average joe he's not some kind of wealthy fat cat uh hot shot a guy who um makes uh, a ton of money and um you know what I'm saying is just that he's 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 a great normal guy, very approachable, but he's got one and a half, well something like that, million dollars in unsecured business lines of credit. Now he doesn't need all of that, obviously, um, but he he actually uh, created a little course that is uh, power packed on how to get those kinds of business lines of credit, and I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So if you go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and look this episode up, I believe it's episode number 18, but uh, you, you'll see Russ's name in the title of the episode. Um, just look it up there and you'll see the um, the little link that we have um, where Russ put this thing together because he's been having so many people you know, ask him, hey, how do you do this? Show me how you do this. Um, and so we just encouraged him uh, to create this course. And so... I'm proud to recommend it. I've been through it. I've reviewed it. It looks really good. Um, pretty soon I'm going to be doing a webinar with Russ to my list um, promoting this product. But you get a sneak peek if you want to go to realestateinvestingmastery.com and check it out. But uh, I think, Russ, you've done uh, you've over-delivered with sharing some tips and advice and t- talking about your story. I know we could go on for another hour. Um, but it's been really good, and I really appreciate it, Russ. Yeah, no problem, Joe. I, I appreciate uh, you guys having me on here. But, uh, I really like, I love all these calls. I've listened to every one of them. Uh, some of them are good friends of mine, but um, I, I pick up little tidbits of information every time I listen to one of these calls. Appreciate it. Have you left a review yet on iTunes, Russ? Uh, I have not, Joe. Oh, come on. <laughs> I'm not broadcasting this episode. I'm not going to publish it <clears throat> until you send me a screenshot of your review. <laughs> All right, no, I'll do a re- I'll do a review of this call. How about that? <laughs> All right, it has to be a good one. Don't leave me a bad review. But that is, we do appreciate all you guys listening in. If you can leave us reviews, uh, you know, in iTunes, just do a search for real estate investing. You'll see us there, real estate investing mastery, and uh, leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast. Um, it helps with our rankings and getting us up there, so other people can find us. Um, but Russ, thanks a lot, man. I sure appreciate it. By the way, Alex uh, got disconnected, so he's not here anymore on this call. But um, he's probably uh, hanging hanging out with his kids and his wife at Starbucks. 
But uh, thanks again, Rush. I sure appreciate it. We'll talk soon, all right? Yeah, thanks, Joe. All right, guys. Realestateinvestingmastery.com. See ya. See ya.